Hello, and welcome to Exit the Stage Door. I am Aaron Teachman, your host, and it has been way too long since I said those words. I tried to get away with uh, not using the intro on the last episode. I don't know, it just doesn't feel right. Uh, give me your thoughts uh, at Exit Stage Door or via email, uh, erin at tcbcreativellc.com. Uh, if you have any thoughts on the show, look, okay, I'm totally burying the lead here. The fact is, we do have a new episode, and honestly, I think it's an amazing episode. And the reason I'm recording this specifically is actually, it's pretty functional. I'm not just doing it for fun, although, yeah, look, I'm not just doing it for fun. There was a big fan on the stage of, uh, the set of James and the Giant Peach, which is currently playing at Adventure Theater MTC in uh, Glen Echo Park. I highly encourage you to see it. The set is completely amazing. And the managing director, Lauren Hines, is also amazing. And she is the person whose uh, chat I'm bringing you tonight. Uh, look, we haven't had enough of the business side. Uh, and it was time to be able to do this. And fate brought me a managing director of a fantastic theater and that's it was just fate and some of my good friends it worked out really 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 well except for the fact that the fan was on stage and I didn't do the right thing when I recorded it so I had to process it digitally and it sounds like it it sounds like it Lauren sounds a lot better than that in person I apologize for that but it was way 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 better than that fan the important thing is you get to hear her and you get to hear, eh, well, whatever. I'm there too. You get to hear Lauren Hines talk about passion for the business side of theater, of arts administration, of what it takes to put on a show, what it's like to being part of that other part of that iceberg that sits in the office and does all of the fantastic things that makes art possible. And we talk a little bit about opera. It's a, It was, it was, look, I actually literally spent the entire day at Adventure Theater, she was showing me around. Uh, we were talking about their mission and and our thoughts on theater, and it was so fantastic. And you only caught an hour of it, but look, it was a it was a great conversation, and I hope that you enjoy it as much as I did. This is a great one, ladies and gentlemen, Laura Nines. Yeah. It's free, so that means uh, anybody can use it, sort of-ish, maybe. Sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. Depend, depending on what you're using it on, now you run into some copyright <laughs> issues. And yes, that's true. Making zines at Kinko's in the 90s again. It all comes back to zines. <laughs> to zines. All right, we're good. We okay. are started. Okay. I remember is... thinking when zines became blogs and thinking mm -hmm. like, ah, that, that word is also stupid. It's not going to survive. The blog survived. Blog survived, but you know what didn't survive was vlog. Because <laughs> <laughs> for a while they were trying to make they the video blog, yeah. and it was going to be an MTV style oh, yeah. thing. Yeah. That didn't happen. Yeah. yeah, and then it just became YouTube channels. Right. Yeah. Which are amazing now. Oh, the my people. Gosh, the production quality is incredible. Right, and just what people do. Yeah. The unboxing <laughs> that goes viral, the makeup tips. Like yeah, yeah. More exchanging of ideas and more exchanging content. It's great. All we for live, it. Yeah, we live in a great time to be a creator, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. 
it's harder to convince people to pay you to do that, of course, but... The, the paying is always the <laughs> trick, right? So here we are in the arts industry. It's, uh, <laughs> what does uh, Stafford say? Uh, democracy is not in the voting, it's in the counting. Mmm, perfect. <laughs> that's, what, that's where we are at the arts. Perfect. <laughs> that's very true. It's very true. And then there's a Jefferson quote that um, the playwright Edward Albee has adapted, which is that in the end, a community gets the art it deserves. Oh, yeah. And I'm a big believer in that. And I think that's why you need not only the leaders on the artistic side to be offering a challenging artistic product, but then communities, audiences that also want um, an artistic product that's not only enjoyable and you need plenty of, you know, light fare and candy entertainment, but you need, if you want challenging art, then you have to like go, go buy the ticket, go sit in the audience, go support it. Because if you don't do that, it's going to go away. Yeah. And DC has proven to be a very excellent, um, what's the word, incubator, I think, Yeah. for ways to, I don't want to say educate the audience, because that, that implies a, a lack that they need to be taught something. But a way, mm-hmm. audience engagement is, is a very frequent term you hear on right. staff. Right. And there's a lot of really interesting stuff that's being done to engage the audience way before like long after the season has been announced, and but way before anybody has bought a ticket or is in seats, like Center Stage does all of this amazing stuff. Right. They, uh, I, I, t- I tell people all the time about it because it was weird to walk into the work that day when they had put all of this dirt on the floor and turned yes. it into an, a Jamaican shack before Marley. Like, oh yeah, this is cool. Yeah, you get a sense of what you're gonna, what's gonna happen, and they do stuff way before you even get to the lobby too. It's. Uh, it's cool. It's cool. I love that we're extending the theater performance beyond just the stage. I think there could be nothing better. And it's making the education experience built in to the theater experience. So when you do something like what Adventure Theater does, where we're part education and part mm. performance, we really put some thought into continuing the education experience into the theater and continuing the theatrical and, and just pure enjoyment experience beyond. Um, but I, I, in DC, a lot of folks, I think, are at the cutting edge of that, even even to the social media experience oh, yeah, absolutely. that happens wrapped around the project. You did, um, you were at the Folger, you were saying for Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, mm-hmm. and there was the running contest for the audience, how many skulls yes. are on the stage to tweet us <laughs> yes. during the performance. I totally, I was counting oh, the skulls awesome. and having a great time. Did you get the number right? No, I was low. Oh yeah, there's um, whatever like it was, twenty nine of them on stage. Right. The uh, the props master <laughs> drove her insane. She had to cast all of them herself, like they were custom made. Uh, a, a bunch really? of them, yeah. Especially because I mean, they had to make a cast for there's there's one there's one that gets some pretty severe damage yes. done to it. So right. right, that was the one that had to be cast. So she had all these other things to get it right. So like that all ended up perishable props. <laughs> So you've met my husband, Shannon. Um, one of the very first theater shows that we did also had um, props that were mistreated and abused during the show. <laughs> Distressed. Yes. So you, my gamer friend, have you ever played like like miniatures games? The I figures? never have. No, so, but, but you know I mean, what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. So you have like little statues. Don't call them dolls. Your husband will get offended. <laughs> um, and there's, there's also a whole subculture about the whole painting mm-hmm. of these figurines um, and you collect them you have your army and your army goes into battle against someone else's army 
So Shannon was really into this when we first started dating, and then I was stage managing a show in Columbus for Red Herring Theater Ensemble called Lonesome West, which is just, oh, um, yeah. about to come on now here in D.C. Um, oh, I can't remember who's going to do it, but we're really excited we're both going to go. Because you want to see the toasters. So, toasters? Am I thinking of the wrong the one? The oven. Oh, I'm thinking of the wrong the one. The oven explodes. Yes, the oven explodes. The oven explodes at the end, and back to figurines are destroyed <laughs> in a big fight. One brother to the other brother. Um, I've had it with you, and he goes yeah. around and breaks all the porcelain figurines of saints right, um, right. that are around their Irish cottage. So um, we're, we're troubleshooting this in early tech and production. What are we going <laughs> to do? <laughs> and meanwhile, I'm applying my Catholic heritage, too, to go to all the stores <laughs> and get some figu- saints, fi- saint figurines, but... But they're expensive, yeah. and and I would really like to not hurt real figurines mm, yeah. of real saints. Yeah. That just whether you're, you're agnostic or not, um, it's painful. So my husband ended up getting a lot of plastic um, bulk figurines, but they have to be painted. Right. So he is my gamer <laughs> new boyfriend at the time. He's sitting at home, serving the art of theater, <laughs> putting some color washes on different figurines. That's awesome. We fell in love. The rest is history. <laughs> No, I was so I was thinking of the Sam Shepherd and Lonesome West is McDonough, right? Right, yeah, Lonesome West yeah. is McDonough. Because I was thinking about the two brothers who want to be screenwriters, and West is also in the title. Um, True West. True West. Yeah, True West. I'm thinking of True West. Yeah, Lonesome West. That's awesome. Yeah, I love McDonough. Yeah, yeah. The dark Irish playwrights in general, I love. Um, one of our staff members here at Adventure Theater is up in Baltimore, and oh, he's um. Oh, the show has gone out of my head, so maybe I'll have to. It'll it'll pop in later in the conversation. <laughs> um, but it's one of the early Irish playwrights whose work is really rarely done, mm-hmm. and I think the the voice has the authenticity. We've been, you know, I've been talking a lot about about the show, even though I'm not super familiar um, with it. But it has there's there's something about the Irish experience, the suffering that's built into it, the the Catholicism and religion. Um, the drinking, <laughs> the tempers, and it all bakes together into something that makes for amazing theater. Yeah. Yeah, the, speaking of the testing things uh, in the choices you make and Martin McDonough, we did uh, Lieutenant Ishmore. Right. And so they, they, they came into the theater a bunch of times because they had two things they needed to test. One uh, was the blood, mm-hmm. because there's all kinds of blood effects in the show. There's mm-hmm. a guy, his name is Waldo, um, who is pretty much the violence designer. It's what I call it. I, he has a different technical title, fight choreographer or whatever. For, but he does, all, for a long time, he did almost every production of Inishmore that any regional theater like wanted to take seriously. Because um, there's oceans of blood in it. I think we used 12 gallons of stage blood. A night, not not a night, a show. A show. It's at least it was at least eight. It, it, eventually, when I tell this story, it'll be thirty or oh whatever. My but there was multiple gallons of stage blood per show. We ours was the bloodiest show up until that point. But the blood has to be shot out of a tube. It has to be put in someone's mouth. It has to be poured. It has to be the right color. So we're coming back. Like, is this the right viscosity? Okay, but we can't right. use this one around. This, this stains the then then like then does the, costume the costume designer loses their mind yeah right so um, so there were like days of tests of coming on with swashes and we couldn't wash this and we could yeah. wash this and he can't put that in his mouth but he has to put that in his mouth yeah uh, 
and it has to come out of the tube and not, and we have to be able to keep reloading that because right. it's, it's a, a pneumatic effect to have the blood splurt, just the little oh, slits right, in it. Right, right, uh, That is, we'll come back to that in a second because it's one of my favorite stories. <laughs> um, the intersection of Super Bowl Sunday and theater with hilarious results. Um, the other thing they had to test was the gunshots. Mm-hmm. And they actually had a huge fight about it. Um, how they obviously wanted the gunshots to be as loud as possible mm-hmm. without actually being damaging to the audience. Mm-hmm. The actors, <laughs> this right. also got a huge fight. Right. Because the actors all had earbuds that okay. were like custom fit, so they disappeared. No one was able, would be able to tell it, but that presented a big time challenge. For the entire rest of the show. Yeah. <laughs> right. So the director's like, okay, we're going to have a, we're going to have a moment where I give you a note and they're just, Take out your head. Just take them out. Right. So crazy. But, and it turned out, so basically, the automatics, because they used a lot of 9 millimeters, mm-hmm. or the 9 millimeter equivalents, they obviously only shot blanks. Um, and the revolvers, like, they swore quarter load, half load, full load, like, why, why, why does this gun not sound as loud as the other one? And it turned out, when they got the actual noise meter out, they were as loud as each other, but the pitch was different. Uh-huh. The revolver is deeper, so you could feel it, and it mm-hmm. made it feel louder. Right. Which was right. fascinating. But Super Bowl Sunday. Okay. And gunshots. So there was this one effect. It was supposed to splat blood onto a bookcase and a little bit onto a window. Mm-hmm. So directly to the right of the actor's head. Somehow between shows and between tests, we tested the pattern as well, mm-hmm. um, because you don't want what is about to happen, happen. It got turned uh-huh. a little bit, and when the effect went off, it went whoosh, straight to the back of the house. <gasps> All six rows. You oh. just see it. Seat, seat, <laughs> seat, seat, back wall, just full of blood. But because it was Super Bowl Sunday, not a single no, patron was in any of those scenes. Oh, you're so lucky. <laughs> so lucky. We got complaints enough, but the one time we saw the lady roll in with the white white pantsuit, like, lady, you're you in the front her. row. Oh my oh, gosh, no. don't do it, please. It was amazing. That show is still one of my favorites. Oh my gosh, so you get that interactive, immersive theater experience. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, like Evil Dead, but... Right, right. But less plastic sheeting. <laughs> Have you done any of that 360-degree immersive theater? No, the audience really is participating. You're into that? I'm so I'm skeptical, man. It's not my not my scene. It's, uh, so I did. I talked to Dog and Pony, the people right. behind Dog and Pony, a couple times, and uh, and I went to their Fringe show, Squares, mm-hmm. um, which is a really brilliant idea. But it's uh, games like asphalt games, the kind of games that you would play on the playground. Foursquare. Yeah, uh-huh. Foursquare is one of the first things you play. Yep. yep. Yeah. Um, that's the sort of pre-show, get everybody loose game uh-huh. and, they, and that's where they start so they start it's all about how rules can be unfair without you thinking about it so they play all these games that force you to think about the idea behind the rules and so instead of simply accepting the rules right why does this game have to be called this slightly racist thing hmm. why didn't you question it before if you knew in your head eh, i don't like that yeah um Oh my gosh. It's so so uncomfortable. It can be. And in that moment, uh, I think, I I don't think everything is susceptible to it, but I do think there are, when when you get, when you get a core idea that's good, it can be very effective. 
Too Much Light Makes the Baby Go Blind, the new futurists, new futurists oh. um, did a moment like that in their latest trip down here to Woolly Mammoth, where the whole play, and, the, and if you're familiar with it, you know that they do the 30 plays in 60 minutes. Um, some are long, some are short. They're all true stories, but a hugely wide variety of topics or funny or serious or everything. So, um, and very high level of audience interaction. It's not immersive theater like, you know, Sleep No More, but oh, yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's definitely not traditional theater at all. Um, so my husband and I were there, and they, an actress comes out into the audience and standing in an aisle and points up to a light, a special, and she says, that, is, that light is God, that light is God, that light is God, and repeats it. Another actor comes out and joins her, and the point is that, that the audience gradually joins in until you're all standing and pointing at a light and saying that light is God and like okay I got the point really fast oh, yeah. and for the <laughs> rest of the time I was like so uncomfortable I wanted to crawl out of my skin that's the point that's exactly what they're going for yeah yeah and then sometimes you just need like a musical right where well, you yeah, sit back exactly. and are entertained I, the entertainment yeah. value there's room for both in theater yeah and absolutely. I love that yeah. Sometimes people turn their noses up at pure entertainment value. But you know what? You're at home watching The Daily Show, too. Yeah. <laughs> it's candy yeah. because we all yeah. need some candy. Yeah. And I think that at its very, very core, theater exists to simultaneously take us out of the real world and give us a little vacation from it and give us the distance from the real world you need to have some bigger thoughts and bring back to your daily existence, maybe a little bit more wisdom, a little bit more inspiration, yeah. and a little bit more um, being connected to a larger story, something that you encountered on the stage. Yeah, I completely agree with that. It's <laughs> good stuff. It's good stuff. Yeah, and I, I mean, ultimately, I, it's uh, it's interesting to me as a German major because yeah. one of the you you can't get away with talking about German literature without talking about Bertolt Brecht. So, when he developed his theories, they were much more confrontational. Um, but it is essentially the same concept, though. We talk like the idea is to change the people um, by not letting them by, by not letting them in, indulge in the notion that there is a fourth wall or whatever. Right. And that was right. aggressive at the time. But what's really interesting is that the things that we just said are are the, incorporating all of his techniques and, right. and the concepts, but just no longer accepting the, the idea that it's not okay to know that you're watching theater. Right. Like, totally. Take it back even farther, man, to ancient Greece, where oh, it yeah. all began. So the idea of the chorus as a narrator ushering you through, but then also the social voice of the community that they could say... So are you ever in a movie theater... And like the person yells, like "Don't go into the basement," yeah. or like whatever, because because you, you're so immersed in the movie. And, yeah. And and I think that's actually what the Greek chorus does. And and from what I've read in history books, you know, there was a lot of interaction mm -hmm. between the Greek um, audiences, and what was going on stage, and the chorus organized that action a little bit, so right. it wasn't just people yelling in the audience. <laughs> um, and and I I think that they had such a complete vision of how theater functions in society as art and as dialogue and as politics um, and as pure entertainment yeah. that we did. Um, when my husband Shannon and I went a few years ago to um, Greece and Turkey, we went to the old Ephesus Ooh. ruins 
and saw the theater, the um, audit, well, uh, amphitheater, amphitheater yeah. there that, that is still fairly intact. And I just the whole time was like in a dream. I can't believe that this is where those shows were produced for the first time <laughs> yeah. that we still have them. And here's the funniest thing, and this is my fundraiser's brain, is that the emperors and the nobles and their names were carved into the <laughs> seats. <laughs> we do the same thing. Oh, man. Theater has Names changed. on the seats. <laughs> Some things never change. Do you... So, this only halfway... Uh, did you ever... Do you watch the, the Jinx? Yes. Robert Durst. Yeah, yeah. So, I... And I can't say this for... Fact, but there are rumors that at the alley there is an armrest that has Robert Durst's name on it because he he gave the requisite amount. I wouldn't be surprised. But uh, somebody somebody caught on and recognized it, so it's not actually in the theater space. Right, it just exists. Right, right. Well, and that's something we all have to think about as you move through a donor relationship. Is that Sometimes those relationships soar. Sometimes your donor is up on federal charges. <laughs> then what does your company do? That's and an the answer question. might be different every time, yeah. right? Well, yeah. Unique situations. Yeah. But life is crazy. <laughs> Arts are a crazy business, and things are going to happen. Hopefully you don't have that experience. At Adventure Theater, with, with, our, with our children's theater <laughs> audience, we haven't had anything... <laughs> Anything like that, but um, but no, I've seen I've seen I've seen it at opera companies. I've seen oh, it at, of course, yeah. Um, I mean, you 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 see it at any level, right? I mean, somebody gets pulled over for for drunk driving, mm. but they're the mom that's been leading your big fundraising raffle campaign, or like you you just never know. That I want to be clear, that has never happened at Adventure Theater. <laughs> <laughs> but that that's just what I'm saying is that is life is going to happen and. We need to be able to manage the relationships with, as individuals and then manage the relationships as institutions, mm, yeah. as companies. Yeah. Um, something that happened here in D.C., I think it was just a year ago, maybe two years ago, um, uh, Jackie Mars, uh, Mrs. Mars, who's such a big donor and supporter and then a legendary philanthropist in the D.C. community, especially to the arts. Um, and it's of the Mars family like M&M's out here in the plain, the biggest private company still in America. Um, had a tragic driving accident, and there was a fatality. Um, in fact, if I remember correctly, it was a pregnant woman. Um, and truly tragic. There was no alcohol involved. It was late at night, and, and she was very tired. But um, it, there was the benefit, right, that this is not egregious or intentional wrongdoing right. um, that everyone, I think, could understand that you had an accident and these horrible things happened. And she was able to leverage her philanthropy for that family, nothing can ever replace a life or repay. But she was able to ensure, you know, some future um, comfort for, right. for the family and other kids in the family. And then every organization that benefits from her generosity, which is dozens, literally dozens of organizations around DC, I think had to decide how they handled their relationship with her and the relationship there. Like, you know, I don't think Mothers Against Drunk Driving, drunk driving was one of those. And again, there wasn't drugs. Right. Drug or alcohol involved, but life is crazy. You never know. You don't. That's definitely true. I did want to circle back real quick. Um, Well, not necessarily real quick. I hope this is longer than a short tangent because I, um, 
like I said, Connolly, my friend, is, a, is an opera singer. Uh-huh. And um, he's given me a couple glimpses about, like, the different, ha- about how opera operates. I didn't, didn't plan that sentence It's okay. It's well. a Latin root. You can avoid it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and how stage managing is different, and it's a different union and all. But, like, oh, I, right. I, when did you first get involved with opera? Probably in the... 2001, 2002, I was started stage man- assistant stage managing mm. for operas, um, which feels like back in the day yeah. by now. Yeah. Um, and there's something, you know, like all theater, we're evolving with technology, but there is with a live orchestra, with, sing- with, with an unamplified human voice, mm-hmm. there is something natural and organic and deeply human about opera and the work that we do, um, that, that indeed the industry hasn't changed very much. But yeah, stage managing, the whole process in stage managing is, is different. So you want me to just list? Yeah, well, I mean, the, some absolutely. Fun facts? Yeah. <laughs> so when well, you, and how, eventually we'll get to how you, how you got into it at all. But, but. Oh, I just needed stage managing gigs, man, <laughs> that's all. You take whatever job that's you get, true. you know that's how that goes. Yes. But I read music, and if you, if you can't uh, read yes. music, it's really, really hard to stage manage opera. Um, but I have a background as a pianist, so it's easy to make that transition for me. Um, so some things that are different, um, everyone shows up for first rehearsal, you know, your part. Mm -hmm. So in theater, you have first rehearsal, you have a table read, a meet and greet. You do not have your lines memorized. That happens as you go through the process. In opera, you have it memorized. Part of that is that what you have to memorize is not just the words, but the music. Um, it's extremely complicated, and you're working through that usually with your personal vocal mm. coach. Um, also, it's a limited repertoire, right? Yeah. That keeps getting repeated, and there's some great new operas, and working on a new opera is different, um, but, but you still do show up with familiarity of the music. Um, and you get on your feet right away. There's no table read. We don't sit around and do mm. do a sing-through <laughs> at, a, at a folding table in a conference room. Uh, that would be Although that would be funny. Hilariously awkward. <laughs> um, you, uh, stage managers call from the stage. Even if there is a booth, you will not call from the booth. There may be your board ops or an ASM up there, maybe. But this is just a tradition in opera that you're on the stage next to the stage. Part of that is because of the live orchestra and being able to be physically close mm-hmm. and in contact with them and, and acoustically, too, that there's right. no interference. Right. Um, you call all your singers, all your artists, to the stage. Are you, you're smiling. That's You've heard one. of this one? Yep. <laughs> so every theater person laughs at this because in the theater, you're expected to know your entrances. It's part of being a professional performer. In opera, we call your five-minute warning. So... You know, Mr. Jones, five minutes, five minutes to your Act Two entrance, Mr. Jones, and um, and then you have an ASM who's on the lookout, and you'll confirm that they're there where they're supposed to be, um, and that tradition it's 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 truly serves a purpose. And again, we're back to the limited repertoire. Not only is there a limited repertoire, but if you sing baritone, now you have an extra limited roles um, repertoire of personal roles that you play. So maybe this guy is singing Escamillo and Carmen. And he goes around the country and does that. He doesn't know what city he's in tonight. Right. He doesn't yeah. know what director's version of Carmen he's singing. He'll remember when he gets out on the stage right. and sees the set and the beautiful mezzo that's playing across from him. It'll all click in. It'll be fine. 
But this is the extra safety mm. for this particular arts industry to make sure they're, that the singers are actually where they need to be. Um, well, it's too, because one of the things that um, always blows my mind, particularly since I've been involved in the production side, like how many hours and how much work goes into building the sets and putting those lights up. And there are four, four shows, two weekends worth sometimes. Right. Kentucky Opera does two, so it's really easy to be like, oh yeah, you can come in, sing a night or two, and then you're on to your next gig. Right, so now you're into the economics <laughs> of the arts industry and the lack of balance there. It's, there's so much money in opera. It is, right. it is amazing. Well, it's expensive to do. Yeah. Um, but they're, the companies are struggling and, drop, and some of them are, are closing yeah. because, because of that economic limitation. So very few opera houses own their space. Mm -hmm. So if you have to go into a space, it's really expensive. We actually go through tech pretty quickly. Yeah. You might be in the theater space for a week and for a theater show probably might be two weeks um, if you're going into a space and then ideally you have a resident space that you can actually work in. Yeah. Um, but that means if, if we're in a week or maybe slightly more, you're doing load in maybe in a day. <laughs> you're getting your dry tech up in maybe a day or lighting focus, right? Half a day. Yeah. Dry tech for 12 hours. Then you get some people on stage. Then you add the orchestra and speaking, you had mentioned unions earlier. I mean, most, no, most, most of the time you're, use, you're working with a minimum of seven different unions. Right, yeah. Different unions that all go on breaks at different Yeah, I say the musicians' union is notorious for this. AFM is complicated. So you have, um, so you mentioned the Alley Theater, and I haven't told you my Alley story Ooh. that I know you've worked with. So in up, at up Upper Columbus, um, where I was director of production for a few years, um, we were in the uh, Palace Theater which was an old vaudeville house in downtown Columbus. So there is no backstage. Oh, yeah. And we have opera sets and sometimes two or three acts. Each act has a different set. Yeah. And we're performing during the traditional arts season, so it's winter. And you bring the curtain down, and, you, and you, we do have the benefit of it's very traditional. This is not your modern, like everything's on hydraulics and air casters and floats in and out and this fabulous Broadway-style scene changes. This is, the curtain goes up, it's one set, you do your act, the curtain comes down, we change the set. Um, so easier to handle um, in terms of mechanics, but these sets have nowhere to live backstage because there is no backstage in vaudeville, so they are literally in the alley. <laughs> Did I mention it's winter? So we open up the loading door, the audience is enjoying champagne at intermission, the carpenters go into work, changing the set, and the cold air sweeps in. When cold air comes in, it seeks the lowest ground, right? Thermodynamics. Where is the lowest place oh. in the theater, Aaron? It's usually the green rooms. Oh, where? And um, the trap and the orchestra pit, actually. The orchestra pit. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> <laughs> so it sweeps like a waterfall oh, of cold air. Man. And you can want, we actually had a thermometer in there. Yeah. Again, union rules, so you have to give them a yeah. comfortable working space. And I want to emphasize, too, that we complete, of the work we do, you have to have respect for all sides of the art. So not mm -hmm. only the set, which is not being super respected in the alley, but that's just the way it has to be. <laughs> um, but, you know, you can't ask someone to play a violin yeah. with cold fingers. You can't make the, the trumpet, is, the metal is going to fall out of tune. I mean, you have to understand that if you're going to present quality product, you have to control literally every aspect of the environment, environmental temperature. So the cold air would sweep in, it would go down to the pit, 
we have our house stage manager and the union's stage, the, the orchestra manager, the union stage manager, watching the thermometer. And the only solution we had was to put a whole bunch of par cans <laughs> along the orchestra rail. So during intermission, there was an extra light cube bringing oh, all man. the cans up because those are hot, hot. right? 5% efficient at producing light and 95% efficient at producing and heat. And it is that inefficiency that we are after <laughs> <laughs> because it counterbalanced the cold That's air, amazing. kept the pit at a constant temperature so that we could move on. Now we've got the set. Do we have the orchestra temperature? Okay, oh now let's move on to act two. Well, that's the other thing that's fascinating. Somebody, I was talking about my friend Phil, who is the, I think he's the head sound guy now, or he's, he's on staff at uh, Houston Grand Opera now. Oh, wow. Um, and did, did other stage change stuff with them for a long time. Uh, but the scene change, the act change is over when the act change is over. It is not right. a fifteen-minute intermission. It is the intermission until the, the everything is in place, it's and it just, takes the whole time. Oh, it's man. massive. There's an amazing DVD um, called um, "The Stagehands Ring Cycle," where oh San gosh. Francisco Opera had a video crew with them the whole time they were staging the ring, and with a real emphasis on the backstage. And to see what happens is something that I think anyone who loves the theater really should, should learn more about and appreciate. I mean, like you were saying with the stage blood, people don't know. You see the cool effect, and it's a half a second long. Right. And you're like, ooh, wow. If you could understand that that half a second took 20 <laughs> hours, 10 people, 20 hours to work out and get just right. Yeah. That, that's what we do, because yeah. we want it to be exactly right. And I think people want to know, which is why we are having a podcast right now. Yay! <laughs> that's, uh, so, what, what now, you, when did you leave Columbus then? I left Columbus the day after my wedding in October <laughs> of 2006 to come to my new job at Washington National Opera in their office there. Um, so I had gone from being a stage manager to going into the office at Opera Columbus to going into the office at Washington National Opera. Um, and it all happened right around the time we were planning our wedding. <laughs> Washington National Opera needed me to come out early. Um, <laughs> so I was living in my cousin's basement out in Reston, which my commute Whoa. was you know, yeah. an, two, and a half, two hours each way. Oh my gosh. Trying to find a new apartment, trying to plan our wedding, trying to get used to this new job. And I was in the artistic department, so um, Maestro Domingo was around a lot, and that made my head spin. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, Christina Scheppelman was my boss, and people who know opera will recognize her name. She's now the um, intendant at the Liceau in Barcelona, the um, head of the opera, opera there, and she's a force of nature and an incredible woman. Uh, and a very intimidating new boss for a little girl from Ohio. <laughs> so um, I was getting used to all that making the long commute, and went back for a week, got married. We put our house in the truck the day after our wedding and came here. Man, that's tight. <laughs> Holy cow. It was fun times. This is what you do when you're young, right? <laughs> <laughs> you fall in love, you get married, and put things in a truck. And then you make it as logistically difficult as possible. <laughs> Life happens. Especially, I think, if you're in theater, though. Oh, I mean, yeah. we put our lives in trucks all the time. All the time, yeah. Yep. You minimize, you're ready to go. You yep. got your podcast set up here? Yep. Weighs 40 pounds, so I can take it on any airplane. <laughs> it's actually rated to fit overhead, but I haven't had the guts to put it in an overhead video. No, right. Technically right, it's fits, baby. but it's cruel, I think, to most people. Well, mostly to the person sitting in the seat underneath that Yeah, thing. yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. 
But it's so, yeah, it's well inspected by the TSA as a result. Oh, I'm sure they're very familiar. <laughs> I leave every ticket stub behind as a little, Aww. as a little reminder of how many times that it's happened. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe like, okay, that's fine. It's a, there's also an inventory there. Right, of course. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I think a lot of people don't know what this is at all. They go get a black box and look at this mm-hmm. and like, I, I don't know what that, I have no idea what to make of that. Well, it's impressive gear too. So yeah. sometimes I think the TSA is just curious. That's good. I hope I, I hope they are starting up their own podcasts, getting ideas for gear. Like, <laughs> who wouldn't want to know the weird things that happen backstage? So backstage. weird things that happen between backstage and TSA um, is our wig and makeup crews, for, especially for operas, because you have huge cast oh, and chorus, yeah. right? So um, most of the time when I've been working with different operas, whether as a stage manager or in their offices, so your wig and makeup team, to pay for separate freight is usually pretty expensive and it's also scary to put it totally out of your hands so they fly with it and the additional weight and baggage fees were incredible 10 years ago they're even worse i'm sure now um and they can't travel with the aerosol things of course and gels um (laughs) you can check some of it and they just come with like a Jaja Gabor style entourage of luggage that's really not luggage. That's their wigs. Right. Um, unpack it in their wig room and get to work. And it can take two or three days Man. to for them to then style and restore all the wigs that they they picked. I've been trying really hard to get a wig supervisor on because yes. it is it's there's so much. It really is a craft what they do. Absolutely. Uh, right, yeah. On par with the design choices a lot of times. Absolutely, absolutely. And they're in very high demand. I think people who do carve out a career in in wig design for theater um, can really become desired across dance, um, yeah. which is a whole other set of yep. challenges for costume and, and yeah. hair and makeup, uh, to opera, which uses these things a lot, to... Um, the that's another opera thing we use um follow spots always <laughs> and they you might not even notice them because you're a lighting guy too and i um so there's always at least two sometimes there's more follow spots up and they're usually very gentle but it's helping to highlight in such a, a enormous glamorous set in such a massive 100 person chorus here's your star <laughs> yeah. singer or the person who's singing right now. And, yeah. and that too comes from the historic, you know, this is usually in unamplified houses. Um, I mean, they used to be lit by candlelight too. Right. <laughs> really do a follow spot that way. But, and the, ma- and the makeup looks bizarre when you see people up front because you're playing to the back row. You have to be able to see her facial expressions in that, in the most dramatic scene. Yeah. And, and opera houses are enormous Huge. right like the back of, it's not like the, the back of shakespeare is like halfway in some of the giant opera houses that i was in in europe anyway but exactly exactly crazy it's something that makes opera so overwhelming and is that it's really extravagant in terms of scale that you can see from the back row and it's also extravagant in terms of detail that if you're in the front mm-hmm. row and you can really see the embroidery it's there mm-hmm. and it's exquisite really exquisite one of my favorite stories uh there's a designer a set designer that i've worked with a, a bunch of times actually um, his name is hugh landwehr 
Mm -hmm. um, and his attention to detail is is along those levels. Yeah. So we did um, we did a production of Doubt, uh, Love which is an amazing amazing play. Mm -hmm. um, so for her office, she, he had filing cabinets, and he had labels, type written labels on the cabinet, which are. I'm, I'm gesturing with my fingers for you podcast listeners. Um, we're talking like three quarters of an inch mm -hmm. tall mm -hmm. by like two mm -hmm. inches wide. It had the grade for, that the file cabinet was for. Right, right. Which you would only see from the front row with binoculars. But right. he wanted it to be, if someone was interested in that level, they could go all the way to that level. And it helps the performers so much because yeah. they, they live in a world of imagination, but then your designers come in and make that imagination real. And even though you're missing a fourth wall and you're here under stage lights and your makeup is dripping, the more you, when you're in, especially an intense play like Doubt, and you open the file and you see the right thing and not, you know, the leftover, you know, theater administration <laughs> files... Um, it helps you stay in that moment and deliver a performance that I then think can go even to a more deeper and authentic yeah. level. We're sitting here on the stage of uh, the set of James and the Giant Peach, which Adventure Theater is putting on right now, and we love this set. It's incredible. Um, we say it's inspired by those um, the What If and uh, books that are where, like the hidden pictures, oh, yeah. where yeah. there's like a, a thousand things in the picture and you try and find them. Yeah. Um, and we actually play that game with the kids. Um, oh. If we're holding house for any reason, we're waiting for people who are late, uh, we'll have a house manager come out here and play with the kids. You know, can you find a violin? Can you find two ships? <laughs> um, and it's really fun. It also echoes a lot of what happens in the show. So you've got uh, Lady Liberty, because the peach lands, of course, in Manhattan. So sort of foreshadowing that. And then the actors throughout the show are sprinkled in very, props are sprinkled in very clever little places. Um, and it makes the action of the blocking and the movement of the show very organic because they can walk here to this corner and all of a sudden have the prop that they need in their hand. And as the stage magic, I think, for the kids too. Absolutely, yeah. So this was fun set design that um, is actually simple in a way uh, because if you break it down, Besides the dressing of the set, there's not it's not right, incredibly yeah. complex. No, yeah. Lots of right angles, <laughs> but then it fits the story that we're trying to tell uh, through this production. Kids love it. Yeah, that's a perfect segue as well to your career segue. Oh, is it? <laughs> well, I'm curious anyway. Uh, We've actually been talking kind of all day, but I haven't gotten around to the part. Where... I know we should have like recorded the entire day well, we I together, was, but I go ahead. I thought all the time. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure you were like, wait. <laughs> this is good stuff. But um, from opera to the bridge to from opera mm -hmm. to ad adventure theater, yeah, is a long one. As as I as context clues have suggested that mm. you briefly weren't in theater? Yes, yeah, so this right. is the leap. Yeah. leap. So, so to go from opera to adventure theater, I don't know, maybe it's all, it's all theater biz. Um, but I did take a detour into legal services, nonprofits, and I'm actually finishing up business school right now, which is also maybe tangential, but it all makes sense in my head. <laughs> so I, 
I left the team at Washington National Opera uh, right before they merged in the Kennedy Center. I think the merger was announced maybe six months, nine months after I left. Um, and the merger, of course, happened because it was hard times. It was, everyone was going through the recession. Right. Um, the company was facing a lot of challenges, and I was in uh, the, the financial office and the executive office, so sort of at the had a front row seat to some of the challenges that were happening. And I think we went through about three rounds of layoffs. We were about mm. to buy our house. Um, personally, and <laughs> I needed more stability, mm -hmm. uh, and it was really hard emotionally to go through that. So, you know, I kept talking with uh, the people who are much higher up than me, and they said, you know, you'll, you'll have a job, you'll have a job. And I said, well, I appreciate that you say that, but I also know the realities of business, right. and I know that they might catch up with us one day despite any best intentions. So I, I knew I was leaving the opera. I was looking around town, and none of the arts were hiring. We talked about how everybody instituted freezes. If they weren't downsizing, there was right. at least a freeze. Um, so even in a vibrant arts town like D.C., there weren't arts jobs, theater jobs. Um, I was too old to go back to gigging. <laughs> so I, um, I knew I wanted to stay in nonprofits, though. And D.C. is a great city for nonprofits. So my other natural habitat is the legal world. Uh, I grew up in my dad's law office. Uh, started working there since I, when I was 13. And so I speak legal, and I have a deep love from, from my dad of pro bono, mm. community service, um, and how the law changes people's lives. Mm -hmm. um, as an adopted person, too, that the law changed my life. And what can seem like a small transactional legal solution, especially once you've gone through law school and that's your day job, for one client, one day, it's life-changing. Um, so I went over it, and, and there were a lot of need for nonprofit professionals and specifically fundraisers in legal services. So I went over to be a full-time fundraiser for legal services here in D.C., and it, that couldn't have been a better time because the community need was overwhelming, whether it was landlord-tenant court and people coming into trouble uh, with rent payments or landlord relations or landlords cutting back um, because of the recession mm -hmm. on their upkeep, whether it's probate matters, which are always very emotional, can have a small economic impact, but again, that, that's heightened by the recession, um, to things like domestic violence, which actually statistically went on a big uptick. Um, through the stress of the recession. And this is how it happens in real life. And I was working with the D.C. Bar, uh, with the Council for Court Excellence for many years, uh, which works in justice policy. Really like that. Um, and then my, some of my clients as a consultant have been uh, Ayuda, uh, Bread for the City, which does so much more than legal services. But So that that's how I made the decision to go over there, and I really, really loved doing that work. was very passionate about the missions and the clients uh, and the impact we were able to have there. I am doing this business school thing, <laughs> getting my executive MBA at, at Johns Hopkins, uh, just because in my consulting I had some flexibility now um, and I wanted to take my career to the next level. I'd now gotten fundraising skills under my belt as a nonprofit manager, um, always with an eye to coming back to the arts. Mm -hmm. I really liked being in the office and we talked about about this today. I started out backstage, but I couldn't keep my nose out of everything. So I went to the office. I think it's the best place to be. I think it's, I mean, there's, it's very exciting to be backstage during the performance. 
and I maybe I'm the only nerd on the planet, but I think it is just as exciting to be modeling cash flow and communication strategies. I, I really do. This is a dream job. So finish up my MBA. It was finishing my MBA, and um, I'm going to graduate in a, in a few months. Uh, was look, starting to look in the job market for where I would land uh, after my studies and at graduation. And the opportunity with Adventure Theater was immediate. Uh, it was a match made in heaven from the first time we shook hands. It moved quickly, uh, and I'm, I'm here. I'm super grateful. It was a dream job, Erin. I don't know. I, 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 feel, um, I feel like it's all worked out beautifully, and I didn't mean for it to be so, <laughs> so perfect, but it's so perfect. That's awesome. That's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Dreams come true, kids. Arts <laughs> administration is for you. <laughs> oh, uh, I, I, from your lips to so many people's ears, hopefully. Uh, <laughs> well, the, okay. So the, it, if I can go on my soapbox for arts administration, the arts need more business leaders. We need more smart administrators. And it's a great choice for people who have the passion or the training or just the pure enjoyment of the arts, but decide that they're not taking that to the next level. And that happens to a lot of us, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Like, you're a musician, and at some point you decide, okay, I can't go to conservatory, so what do I do now? Well, you can go become an investment banker. You can go, you know, be a retail manager. And these are great jobs, and maybe you have hobbies, or you volunteer around the community. But for people who have true training in the arts, to then develop business skills, whether that's complemented by accounting or, uh, or whether you are a natural marketer, right? You have great charisma because you're an actor and then you understand marketing strategy and that can be a dream marketing um, leader in, in the office for an arts company. But we need more and more people who have the business training and not just the passion for the mission. The passion is one thing and it's essential. But I don't know. Yeah, we should have been recording all day. Yeah, we, we talked did. about this we before. About all this, yeah. um, that you've got to have the smart business background, a long term strategy, and the professional discipline to think about how you're going to pursue your mission and offer your art in a way that's sustainable and allows your business not only to not struggle, but hopefully to thrive and grow and do better um, for many more future years. So anyone who's thinking <laughs> about maybe the career as a performer or on stage isn't panning out, or you're just getting old like me, go, <laughs> go into the office. We need you. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's, uh, I, I always say that, that um, there's just... What you see on stage is just a tip of a very large yes. iceberg, and uh, what uh, it's uh, all corners, right. all types. Right, it's teamwork, and yeah. and as a children's theater, we talk about the value of teamwork a lot. <laughs> we we teach it in our classes, and then you practice it when you get on stage because nothing gets on stage without that. Um, but that extends to the office, and and there's other ways that kids learn teamwork, like sports. Mm -hmm. You know, usually in, in high school, right? Like yeah. you have the jocks and you have the drama nerds or band geeks. <laughs> um, but the thing that both of those have in common is teamwork, and I think that it's baked into the arts industry, the team mentality and the respect for different talents and skills that get you to a shared goal 
that it is actually our competitive advantage against other industries. We know how to work together. Mm -hmm. We know how to put together an orchestra that plays one glorious piece of music. It's definitely becoming uh, more important as like the old business models break down as old career paths become impossible, financially impossible for the companies that used to host them or whatever. Now we're moving to a gigging economy. Uh, the ability to work as a team is and, and to insert yourself into ad hoc teams yes. uh, and, and instantly find a way to, to make that team function better is right. a, a clutch skill and happens like everyone who freelances in theater. Completely. And everyone in, actually everyone who works in theater because each production is essentially an ad hoc team. Exactly. So. Exactly. Yeah, it's definitely. Yeah. A lot of corporations are actually bringing in improv training as oh. a corporate exercise. Um, and I, I love it. I think that... <laughs> You're thinking on your feet. You are applying performance and confidence um, skills. But the thing that I love about improv training that then bleeds into all aspects of arts management is that it's not about saying no or changing the dialogue. In improv, they teach you to say yes and. And then you move towards an optimal solution through a conversation that doesn't have that machismo of I'm right, you're <laughs> yeah. wrong. Yeah. It's I like your idea, let's move it a step farther, let me add to it. And then that brings the team dynamic back instead of one person winning as right. leader. Yeah. You get everybody engaged as co-leaders. It's interesting, it applies I think a lot to production management and to on the technical side as well, because there is a tendency to think of obstructions as, or as, as, and obstacles as things that are in the way of creativity. So when you look at your bottom line, like I cannot afford to do the thing that you just asked me to do, yeah. which would which would be the essential no. Mm -hmm. You have the the whole goal of your team is like okay, let me talk to my people and we'll see what we can do, because mm -hmm. ultimately you only have so many no's in you before it becomes like well we're not. What are we trying to do here then? <laughs> right. Or you start to lose designers and artists yeah, exactly. who say, you know what, I, if that's the limitation, I can't work with that limitation. And that's ultimately a valid response. Right, yeah. So how do you get flexibility with your team and with those, even physical, I mean, we were talking yeah. too yeah. about the Folger and its notorious columns <laughs> that are actually used to great advantage yeah. in the shows and leads to some artistic uh, solutions that they, I don't think they could otherwise do. Wouldn't get there because yeah. they didn't have that obstacle to get them. Yeah. No. Limitations can be inspiring. You know, if someone says, compose a song for me right now, you almost freeze mm -hmm. because you, you don't hear anything in your head because the options are limitless. If I said, compose a waltz, you start hearing something. If I say, compose something in A minor, you hear that right away and it puts you in a mood. So you can show to a designer, you know, here's the physical limitations of our space. Here at Adventure Theater, if you walk off stage, three feet, you've hit a wall. You've face planted <laughs> into a wall. So we have designs that work around that. And you don't realize that the set you see that looks really cool and engaging and then offers all of the production um, benefits that we talked about is actually also solving a physical, <laughs> solving the physical limitations of our space as well. It is. 
fascinating, yeah. But that, yeah, that, that's what you do. That You've got physical limitations. You've got, uh, we only have as many team members as we have, and we can't hire any more right now, maybe. Or we've only got the money that we have. Um, the trick in theater, and this is true for a lot of nonprofits, especially if you're passionate about it, is realizing, I think, your own limitations of how far that you can be flexible. You have to be flexible until. Mm -hmm. Something that's happened in a lot of places is that you say, okay, well, I can do it myself. Okay, well, I'll stay till midnight. Okay, well, I wish we could buy that set piece, but I bet I could get my husband to paint these figurines for me, right? Like, I'm, <laughs> guilty, I'm guilty of it, too. And we all get our friends. Be danger, danger if you're friends with a theater person because mm -hmm. you will get roped in to coat check, at least, if nothing else. Um, <laughs> so... But at some point, maybe you're pushing yourself too far and you're exhausted and yeah. you're no longer able to deliver quality art or you've pushed your friends and family too far and they won't talk to you anymore <laughs> or you've pushed it too far and the art is not the quality that it needs to be on yeah. stage. Yeah. That I, I, I think the, on stage is a real limitation, but for me personally and as a leader, um, the personal limitation is more. We lose track of self-care because we push our bodies and our minds to the edge and over the edge for the art all the time. But if this is going to be your job day in and day out, you have to step back from that edge. You can go there every now and then. I know it's exciting. <laughs> I know it's inspirational. Yeah, yeah. But you cannot live there and have a career in the arts for decades, which when you're good at your job is what you need to do. You want to do right, it for yeah. you and you want to do it for the theaters you work for. So balance is essential. Well, I know I know that for you and I, this conversation could probably right. keep Speaking going. Speaking of balance. Yeah, for a long time because <laughs> we haven't even touched on the Camino or or the feral cats thing, which is also... I, think, I am a crazy cat lady <laughs> and you and I have both walked the Camino de Santiago. <laughs> Which I think I, I I did want to turn it into a podcast, but circumstances did not. We're gonna have to. We'll do a series. Yeah, this will be like an entire spinoff. <laughs> uh, Camino stores would be great. Seriously, if you haven't walked the Camino, you should definitely look at it. Life changing. Yeah, it's great. But um, so that means that's the signal that we're about at our hour, um, and this is the opportunity for you to plug anything that you want to plug. Me? <laughs> well, I am the brand new managing director here at the Family of Adventure Theater, MTC. Adventure Theater is based in Glen Echo, where we perform fabulous shows, including James and the Giant Peach that you've heard us talking about. Come see the cool set, because I can't show it to you on the podcast. <laughs> it's not a vlog. Um, yeah. <laughs> and then we also have, um, with Adventure Theater, MTC, our training academy that's up in the Wintergreen um, Plaza on Rockville Pike. We teach K through 12 musical theater education. So it's everything from early education and movement exploration, pure fun classes to real Broadway prep training. A lot of our alumni have gone on to successful careers. So if our students want something fun to do after school, we have great classes for that. And if we have students that think they might want a career on Broadway, we have classes that will definitely prepare you to go to Broadway or Hollywood or anywhere else and do the very best. So our academy's fabulous. The theater here at Glen Echo is the beating heart of our company. And I'm new to the family here at Adventure Theater. And it's just like I said, a dream come true. <laughs> Couldn't be happier. 
All right. Well, thanks for, thanks for having a chat. Thanks, Aaron. This is fun.